0: It is good to have everyone out with us uh, this morning. If you uh, have a Bible with you, I encourage you to open it to Joshua chapter 2. Joshua chapter 2. We're going to be going through that uh, passage in just a moment. Um, As has already been indicated... There are several visitors with us this morning, and it's so very uh, good to have you here. We're so glad that you're able to join us and be with us, worship with us, study God's Word together. Um, Just add to the number here. uh, And we uh, pray for your safe travels as you continue on. There are a few people here, actually, that... um, Paige and I know a little bit more personally, Uh, quite a few of them came from Indiana, and even more specifically, the the Smith family is with us this morning, and they actually uh, attend the congregation where Paige and I grew up together, and and where we worship for a very long time, uh, where we learned the gospel, and so that's really cool that that they're able to be with us, and um, also the Russells, Brother Dustin, he's actually the preacher at that congregation right now, and so... uh, I don't know why they were all traveling together, but it's, it's, it's still good to, to see all of them. It's very good to just uh, see people from home and just be able to, again, worship with them. And But uh, wherever you did come from, whether you're a member here or you're a visitor, it's just it's good to have you here and, and good to be able to see you and speak with you. I'm, I think I'm probably going to turn this off because I think it may be more uh, uh, chaotic than anything else. I was going to try and fix it really quickly if I could, but... Well, I may have done fixed it. <laughs> <laughs> um, we we will see how that goes. It, it may not work, but I'm going to see if I can't just do this really quickly. Um, but like I said, if you want to go ahead and turn to Joshua chapter 2, Joshua chapter 2 is where we're going to be uh, focusing for the majority of our lesson this morning. And that is because we have been, if you haven't been with us so far, we have been just focusing on uh, Well, I messed that whole thing up, didn't I? We've been focusing on uh, a narrative series, and what I mean by that is just simply that we have been going through at least one lesson throughout every book of the Bible. We started in Genesis and now we've uh, finally come to Joshua. The last lesson we looked at in this series was actually in the book of Deuteronomy. And, and that is a, a beautiful section of the scriptures where Moses is really giving this. It's a second giving of the law. And they're going through God's law before what? Before they're going to invade and conquer the promised land. Finally, after 40 years, they're going to do this. And there was a lot of things that, that Moses says that you need to Remember. You need to remember the law that God has given you. You need to remember uh, not just that, but, but all of the victories that he has brought you. And on the other hand, all the failures that, have, uh, that you have so graciously brought upon yourselves simply because you rejected him. And so we talked about that last. Now we finally come to Joshua where they are supposed to be taking this promised land after this long 40 years of wandering in the wilderness because of their original punishment. Um, and I just think it's interesting as you go throughout the book of Joshua and you see how swiftly and and uh, beautifully they just take the land. And you just think it could have been this easy from the very beginning. Uh, but sometimes uh, man tends to be a little bit thick whenever God gives him uh, a commandment. And so they decide to take the long route and finally they've come here. But before you even get into the first major commandment, uh, battle the first major conquest rather in this period of time where they are taking the promised land Uh, kind of building up to that we come to the story and a character specifically named Rahab and you all already know who that is most of you at least already know who that is But, but Rahab is a very interesting character because she is not an Israelite She is actually one of the inhabitants of Jericho, which is one of the the first major uh, cities that they take, that the Israelites take in this conquest. In Hebrews chapter 11, uh, very quickly, this is a very uh, familiar passage for for many of us. We sometimes call it the Hall of Faith, and it gives a bunch of examples of people that we want to emulate when it comes to that kind of faith. Uh, And one of the people that is mentioned is Rahab. In Hebrews chapter 11 and uh, verse 31, uh, Hebrews chapter 11, and verse, um, well, we'll begin in verse 30. It begins by talking about the, the walls of Jericho. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the harlot did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she had welcomed the spies in. And so, as it's giving us all these examples of people of faith that we want to emulate and we want to look like, it uses this woman who was a Gentile, who was a, one of the inhabitants of a city that was devoted to destruction by God. And so that, we want to know what that faith looked like. We want to learn the lessons of what kind of faith she had so that we can emulate that. And, and we'll continue to go through just a couple more stories after this uh, and probably even look at the, the destruction of Jericho itself. But in, back in Joshua chapter 2, you may just put a bookmark here because we'll, we'll be frequently coming back to this as we go throughout uh, different uh, passages in the New Testament uh, as well as this story. But Joshua chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, it says, Joshua the son of Nun sent two, spy, two men as spies secretly from Shittim, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. So they went and came into the house of a harlot whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And so there's another little tidbit of information that we get about Rahab. Not only was she a Gentile, not only was she an inhabitant of Jer- Jericho, But she was also a harlot. It was told the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, men from the sons of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. And the king of Jericho sent word to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them, and she said, Yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. It came from when it was time to shut the gate at uh, dark that the men went out. I do not know where the men went. "'Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them.' "'But she had brought them up to the roof "'and hidden them in the stalks of flax, "'which she had laid in order on the roof. "'So the men pursued them on the road "'to the Jordan, to the fords. "'And as soon as those who were pursuing them had gone out, "'they shut the gate.' And, and we'll continue on in verse 8 in just a moment. We'll pick back up there. But there we have the very setting, the, kind of the beginning of the story. So once more we have spies being sent into the promised land to bring back a report. This time it's going to be a good report. And I do think that there's maybe a little bit of um, hearkening back to the story when in Numbers chapters 13 and 14 where they utterly failed. Because originally they had sent 12 spies. Only two came back with a good right report. I think it's kind of harkening back to that, the fact that they only send two this time. That's kind of a side point. And, and so they send spies once more to, get, uh, to, to, to kind of spy out the land that they're about to take. And Rahab, as we already have seen, uh, helps them tremendously in this and ultimately is helping God. And I think that this is a part of her faith. And so first of all, what I want to look at is the faith that we see uh, even a, a Gentile, Having, And so, uh, first of all, as you look at her faith, picking back up in verse 8, look at what she says about God. It says, "'Before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, "'I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the terror of you has fallen on us, "'and that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. "'For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water, uh, water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt.' And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites, who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. When we heard it, our hearts melted, and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Now, therefore, please swear to me by the Lord, since I have dealt kindly with you, that you also will deal kindly with my father's household and give me a pledge of truth. And spare my father and my mother and my brothers and my sisters with all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. So the men said to her, or actually, we'll pick uh, pick up there uh, in just a moment. But just so far, I really want to focus on Rahab's, uh, this Gentile's uh, declaration of faith here to a degree, uh, so to speak. We kind of used this uh, a couple weeks ago as we were comparing what Rahab has to say about God and what Balaam had to say about God in Numbers chapter 22. And ultimately how really Balaam, he, he had the same kind of knowledge, but he didn't make the proper application. And so you can have that same information and not come to the right conclusions or actually not make the right choice based on that information that you're given. Here though is a situation where she is making the right decision. She is coming to the people of God and instead of... God having to convince her, like almost having to convince Balaam, it is just, it's already been concluded. I I want, I want to share in your victory. I know that you already have the victory because you serve God, the one who created all things. And, and, and she even uses that, that uh, covenant name between God and Israel that Israel would have for God. And I think that's also something to note as well. But, uh, you know, she says all of this and she did not see everything that the Jews have seen for the past 40 years. The Jews have had... Israel has had many things that they could look at from the crossing of the Red Sea, well, the plagues, to the crossing of the Red Sea, to the manna that was sent from heaven, to the water that was provided from the rock. And they had that continuously. It didn't stop until they come to the promised land and take it. And so, 40 years of all of these signs, evidences, and yet you come to a Gentile woman who's who's just merely heard of these accounts. And she almost has a stronger faith than the rest of Israel for the last 40 years, than the previous generation especially. They had, they had heard God's voice from out Sinai, and they were so terrified and, and told Moses, please, you go and receive the law. And that was a good thing. They had forgotten that fear when they got to, when they got to the border of the promised land of Canaan. And what do they do? They decide, we, you know what, we're just not going to believe him. Here's a woman who didn't see any of that, who didn't hear like they had heard, who didn't have, as let, let's say, a direct a revelation somewhat an indirect and yet she comes to the right conclusion a better conclusion than all of Israel seem to have gotten to even with all of the things they had and so I do think that that is uh, something to know the the impressive declaration that she gives uh, I think exceeds that of Israel uh, by far well you go beyond that but she's willing to do also whatever God requires of her to attain salvation back in in uh, Joshua chapter 2 it says, beginning in verse 14, So the men said to her, Our life for yours, if you do not tell this business of ours. And it shall come about when the Lord gives us the land that we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was on, that, on the city wall, so that she was living on the wall. She said to them, Go to the hill country, so that the pursu- pursuers will not happen upon you, and hide yourselves for, there for three days until the pursuers return. Then afterward, you may go on your way. The men said to her, We shall be free from this oath to you which you have made us swear, unless when we come into the land you tie this cord of scarlet thread in the window through which you let us down and gather to yourself into the house your father and your mother and your brothers and all of your father's household. It shall come about that anyone who goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be free. But anyone who is with you in this house, his blood shall be on our head if a hand is laid on him. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be free from the oath which you have made us swear. She said, According to your word, so be it. So she sent them away, and they departed, and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. Now I'll just say one thing before we get deeper into this point. I do think it's interesting that the way they talk to Rahab, it's almost indicated... Well, even if you do share this with anyone, God is still going to win. There's still kind of that underlying tone that God is still going to get the victory. But but what you we have promised you so far, you will not receive if you betray him. And so I do think that's kind of interesting, that underlying tone there. But in looking at the the conditions that have been given to her, not once does Rahab kind of retort in any kind of maybe condescending way or even reluctant way it's just like do I have to do all of that no but like someone who has sincere true faith they just take what God gives them this is one of the main indicators of faith that you will do what he says and without question no, it's not to say that maybe every now and then we're not going to have some question our or some doubt even. But in every case, how do, we, how do we combat that? Well, we combat it with the promises that God has given with his word. And sometimes we might not get an answer. But what do we know? We know the covenant. We know the conditions that he's given. That much is clear. And so we're not going to question that part. And she doesn't in any degree. She said they they tell her that she has to stay in this house. They tell her that they have to do something so random, put a red cord. Incidentally, I think that's just one of the visual indicators. So that way they know which house not to hit, which house not to destroy uh, uh, the, the inhabitants within the household, at least. But beyond that, she does that. She brings her family in and she doesn't. She, it's interesting because you, in, in Genesis, when, when Sodom and Gomorrah is about to be destroyed, even Abraham is trying to talk to God, and, and I think that this is an indicator of, of uh, God's mercy, mercy throughout that story that you see this conversation between them. But Rahab, she doesn't even go that she doesn't even go down that route. She just focuses on what has God told me to do. That's what I'm going to do without question, and I'm not going to speak up about it. And, and I do think that there's something noteworthy to take from that kind of faith where you are willing to just, just stop talking and receive what God says. I, I think that that's definitely noteworthy in a faith that is commendable. Well, going beyond that, she takes the appropriate action, both in this story and I would say even later on after uh, Jericho Falls. Because at some point she's going to be integrated into the assembly of Israel, and even more is going to have to take place, specifically taking on that law and abiding by everything that God has already specified for the assembly of Israel. But just especially focusing, as we were just talking about, on what she did now. Over in the New Testament, her actions, what, uh, the, the activity of her faith uh, is what is commended. In James chapter 2, James chapter 2, very quickly. James chapter 2, and in James 2, uh, James is, is uh, he brings up Abraham, and, and then he brings up Rahab, and he uses both of these examples, incidentally, two examples that are mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11. Let me just say, this isn't in contradiction to one another as you read through James chapter 2. When you read about what faith looks like, Paul and James, or even the Hebrew writer and James, are not at odds. Rather, it all goes together. It balances perfectly as God's Word always does. But as he brings up Abraham and brings up Rahab, he mentions specifically the activity that was produced, that, that they, uh, that was produced by their faith. In verse 22, You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the work, faith was perfected, talking about Abraham. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works, and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works, when she received the messengers, and sent them out by another way? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Now again, again, you read this verse, and then you go over to Romans chapter 3, and, and Paul begins talking about similar things with faith specifically. And a lot of people, they take those two passages and they say, clearly someone must have been spiritually immature. Well, if we come to that conclusion, you don't believe in the inerrancy of God. You don't believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, rather. And I think God knew what he was talking about in each case, as both men were guided by the Holy Spirit. So what are we supposed to take from this? And this is kind of uh, this is a, uh, contained in one of the articles in, on the bulletin this morning. But one of the things that we're supposed to take from this is that faith is trust in God's commands. At least to one degree, it's, it's many other things as well, as we've kind of been discussing in the prayer class. But one thing that it does is it means that we are saying, "I'm going to do anything you say. I'm going to trust everything you say." And even though I may not fully understand it, just like we were talking about a moment ago with Rahab, I'm still going to follow it. Because I trust you over everything else and everyone else. Clearly, it, do, it doesn't look like someone who says, well, I believe, I believe that God exists. And nothing changes after the fact. He, said, he even brings up demons. Demons believe, and they shudder. But was that enough to save demons? No. Why? Because they didn't have true faith. They didn't have faith like Abraham and Rahab. Faith that said, I'm going to pledge myself to him, only him, above all, and I'm going to do what he says. And so I, I think that's also something that, that we need to mention when it comes to this, this um, example, honorable example of faith that we are supposed to imitate. And we'll come back to the notion of, I think that this, this kind of faith, that, that kind of obedience and activity just continues even as she was brought into the uh, assembly of Israel. But all of that... Um, I think that it is striking to note that so early in the story, what you find, because if you've read the New Testament at all, what you find very quickly is this tension between Gentiles and the Jews, Jews and the Greeks. And, and, and in fact, much of the, and I think that this is a part of the reason for this uh, kind of conversation about faith and works and all that, that comes up so frequently because of some of that tension between the Gentiles and the Jews. What's interesting about this story in the Old Testament that, was, that happened way before any of that in the New Testament, God has already shown that He wants all people to come to Him. God has already shown that He is willing at a very early, very early stage in their, in their uh, existence as a nation, He is willing for people to be grafted in. That even a Gentile can be saved. Uh, and, and that notion is something that I think you see all throughout the Bible not just in Joshua but even before Joshua and especially in the New Testament in the New Testament it's essentially saying here now it's been revealed everything we need to know God has always wanted all people to come to him God has always wanted the people that seek him to find him and, and it's so I also thought that that was something that we need to to know as you look at this story that yes this was a fa- the faith of a Gentile one that showed even more uh, uh, I would say Strong than much of Israel's history uh, up to that point, stronger at least in the example, um, and not only that, but a faith that ultimately led her to that salvation, uh, which again, we'll talk about more as we continue. But with all that being said, when you go back to Joshua chapter two and you see uh, you know how specifically Rahab lies, this is one of the first questions that comes up, whether it's someone who is just reading through this story for the first time. Someone who may have read this a few times but is finally just asking the question, what about the deception? What about the fact that Rahab lies? And I think that this is a question that is most often genuine. I'm sure it can be dishonest at times, but I think that this is an honest question that we have to ask and answer. And we have to come to a good conclusion. Now, first of all, I would just say, as you look throughout the story and you look throughout the the moments where Rahab and her faith is, is cited, what is being honored at the moment? What is being glorified in those moments? Well, it's certainly not the deception. Never is her lie honored or glorified or elevated or held up. Rather, it's the focus on the faith that she had. Imperfect faith, yes, but she still had that genuine kind of faith. Back in uh, uh, Joshua, if you're not already already there, in chapter 6, Joshua chapter 6, beginning in verse 22. This is uh, within the story where they're actually taking Jericho. But in verse 22 beginning, it says, Joshua said to the two men who had spied out the land, go into the harlot's house and bring the woman and all she has out of there as you have sworn to her. So the young men who were spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and her mother and her brothers and all she had They also brought out all her relatives and placed them outside the camp of Israel. They burned the city with fire and all that was in it, only the silver and gold and articles of bronze and iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. However, Rahab the harlot and her father's household and all she had Joshua spared and she has lived in the midst of Israel to this day for she hid the uh, the messengers whom Joshua sent out to spy Jericho. (coughs) I butchered that last sentence so let me just repeat that. <clears throat> and she has lived in the midst of Israel to this day, for she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. And so, uh, and, and we're going to look at, uh, again, Hebrews 11 in just a moment. But in each case, uh, starting with Joshua chapter 6, it doesn't bring up the fact that, oh, look at how she lied. And again, I think that's a conversation that you can get in even more uh, detail about. But the fact of the matter is, every time it mentions Rahab, it speaks specifically about the choice that she made. And what was the choice? She's on God's side. And she abandoned everything else, her own people, so that she could be with the people of God, so that she could be grafted in to that assembly and share that king, that beautiful and glorious king, God. That's the point. And that's the thing that is elevated back over in Hebrews that we just read, Hebrews chapter 11. Once more as we read this, does it say anything about the deception? In verse 31, by faith Rahab the harlot did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she had welcomed the spies in peace. Again, I think that there could be some some good and honest conversation about the deception itself, but I just want to keep this very basic and simple as we go throughout this point. And we just read James chapter 2. Not once is the deception itself, I don't even know if it's spoken of again, but it certainly is not glorified in any way. Rather, it just focuses time and time and time again on her faith. And incidentally, that's the whole reason Hebrews, the writer in Hebrews 11 is bringing her up because he's talking about faith that you want to emulate. Now, one thing that has to be acknowledged as you talk about this is that faith tends to be um, imperfect not tens but always has been except with one individual and that's Jesus because he was he was perfectly sinless but there's not one person who who at least is a believer who is a Christian who would dare say well I mean I know that I've had an imperfect faith now this is not to go to another extreme and say well this means that an an imperfect faith is ideal and that's what we're striving for no remember what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5 verse 48 you be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect this isn't just a, a, a you know a, a, a blank check that we get to fill. Well, that means I just get to do whatever I want because, hey, I have faith. No, keep the balance there. Remember that all of God's word has to balance out. We're not going to contradict it with another passage. But we do have to acknowledge the fact that we sometimes fail. And it's okay to acknowledge that because only when we acknowledge that is when we find um, the answer to to get over uh, the imperfection that that has uh, kept us uh, from from growing and kept us from striving with God in our relationship with Him. Uh, a couple other examples that I'd like to look at in Exodus chapter one that I think are consistent with that point. Exodus chapter one. Here's another example where deception is a part of um, some people who are really trying to do the best that they can. Exodus chapter 1, after Pharaoh has decided that he is going to slaughter the innocent, slaughter the uh, babes of of Israel, all the male babes of Israel, it says in verse 16 as uh, as he's giving them this instruction, when you are helping the Hebrew women to give birth and see them upon the birthstool, if it is a son, then you shall put him to death, but if it is a daughter, then she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded them, but let the boys live. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this thing? And let the boys live. The midwife said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not as the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife can get to them. So God was good to the midwives, and the people multiplied and became very mighty. Now, once more, when you... Here is a moment of deception with, I would say, faithful individuals. People who are trying to serve God and and trying to make sure that they don't uh, abide by a wicked and purely evil uh, commandment given by Pharaoh. It says that God was with them, God was good to them, uh, and, and, uh, and the people multiplied and became very mighty. But even in this passage, not once do you see that it was the deception that's being glorified, but rather it's the faith again, just like as we've talked about with Rahab. You go back over to Joshua in Joshua chapter 9, a very um, similar story because what do we have? But Gentiles trying to be grafted into Israel. But even the Gibeonites, because they have that same kind of fear that Rahab had, they see that this people is going to swallow up all the land and that they are going to inherit it because God has promised it to them. And so the Gibeonites, they, they lie to the people of Israel as they are trying to... Uh, make sure that the people of Israel don't destroy them. But beginning in verse 22, what does it say? Verse 22 of Joshua chapter 9, Joshua called for them and spoke to them saying, Why have you deceived us saying we are very far from you when you are living within our land? Now therefore you are cursed and you shall never cease being slaves, both hewers of wood and drawers of water for the house of, of my God. They answered Joshua and said, Because it was certainly told your servants that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land before you. Therefore we feared greatly for our lives because of you and have done this thing. Now behold, we are in your hands. Do as it seems good and right in your sight to do to us. Thus he did to them and delivered them from the hands of the sons of Israel and they did not kill them. Joshua made them that day hewers of wood and drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord to this day in the place which he should choose or he would choose. Now, we read that passage and there's a couple things to know. Once more, the deception is not glorified or elevated. In fact, they're even somewhat uh, rebuked, strongly rebuked by Joshua for the deception. And so from the very outset, what we find is it's not something we don't take from this story. Oh, well, then it's virtuous to lie. No, because from the beginning of what Joshua's, Joshua's rebuke to the people, he says, what in the world were you thinking? But at the same time, because of the faith that they had, what happens? They were grafted into Israel. Now they had to bear that curse. That curse wasn't taken away, but they were grafted in because they sought God. Now, all of this just to say, uh, once more, let me reiterate if I've said it poorly. This is not a certificate to just to think that it's ideal to, to not grow in our faith. And that it's okay to just you know, always sin and, and test the grace and the mercy of God even, just because we're believers and we have true faith. No, true faith is, like we said, quoted from Jesus just a moment ago, we are striving to be perfect like our Heavenly Father is perfect. But we do have to recognize, just like the Bible recognizes, that there is the reality that, that there is, at least at the beginning, spiritual infancy. Uh, you don't start as the mature Christian that you are after 20 years of, uh, after you've been baptized. No, there's actually quite a bit of growth. There's supposed to be quite a bit of growth. In fact, if there's not that growth, that's an indicator of something very, very wrong. This is why I think the Bible uses language, not the only reason, but one of the reasons, John chapter 3, when Jesus talks to Nicodemus about being born again. In Hebrews chapter 5 and verses 12 through 14, we will go there this morning, but you read about this notion that they are still on uh, the milk of the word when they should be on solid food and so we have to recognize the fact that there are uh, uh, there is at least a brief period of time when you become a Christian when you are grafted in to the kingdom of God that there is a bit of spiritual infancy there now clearly what we're not saying is that it's supposed to stay there and i think even with the gibeonites and with rahab what you would see is that they did progress they did grow they didn't they didn't just stay in that place of well you know i guess since god accepted me even though I deceived these people, even though I lied, which is, again, breaking one of the Ten Commandments. I guess it's just fine and I don't have to worry about that. No, there's supposed to be a continual need for growth. Over in Ephesians chapter 4, <clears throat> Ephesians chapter 4, I think Paul uh, speaks of this pretty uh, pretty well when it comes to this kind of growth. Paul frequently throughout his epistles writes to people who uh, he he kind of tries to get them to remember the way that they used to live. The old man that used to be in charge, that they put to death when they put Christ on. And so Ephesians chapter 4 in verse 22 beginning, it's kind of in the middle of a sentence, but it says that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth each one of you with his neighbor, for we are members of one another." Even Paul acknowledges that there is a time where you just don't know everything that, that, that you need to know. No, Again, no one in this room, if, if you're a Christian, would say, would dare say, well, I knew everything that I needed to when I became a Christian. No, if, if you've been a Christian for 10 years, even for five years, what you realize is, wow, I didn't realize the full impact of what happened when I was baptized. Incidentally, that's what is written about in Romans chapter 6, when Paul is talking to who but Christians. You'd think that Christians should know what that baptism is supposed to be and what it's supposed to, what it's supposed to suggest about what happened. They were being Buried like Christ to rise in newness of his life. But here he is writing to them. Do you not understand this? They needed to be reminded. They needed to to learn what that was actually about if they didn't understand it already. And so there is that continual need even for people who are trying to be grafted into that kingdom today. There's that continual need to, to try and grow. And, and try and make sure that we aren't just remaining stagnant in a place of, of really uninformed spiritual infancy. That must grow past that. There was actually, there's a brother who, who preaches in um, uh, another country, it's Fiji, and his name is Nevetesh. And it, it, he, he's, a he's a wonderful brother in Christ, and he's preaching down there. And he, he was giving an example of uh, a man that he was baptizing one day. And the man, he had been having studies with him for a while, but clearly he wasn't going to know everything that Nevitash knew because Nevitash, I mean, he studied the word every single day and he'd been doing so for years. So, of course, you can't expect that. But what happened was as he was baptizing the man, the man started to take his shirt off and, and they were, you know, baptizing him in a creek and there was a crowd there. And what Nevitash said to him was, listen, friend, God does not want you to expose yourself in nakedness. And so you know what the man did? He put it back on. And he was baptized. Now, here's what I love about that story. It's a good example of a gentle rebuke, which I think we need from time to time. Not just, you know, going for that gut punch every single time someone starts to do something wrong, but but more to the point, that man didn't know everything he was supposed to. Now that's a conversation that they're going to need to have. And, they, and, and he would have to continue to press in the fact, this is what God says modesty is. And this is what he said nakedness is. And so we need to make sure that we remember those points that we see throughout the Bible and make sure that, that, that we aren't exposing ourselves. This is why I said that when, when you're about to be baptized. Now, it, do, you think, do you think that it would have been right to baptize that man if he said, no, no. No, you know what, I get to do whatever I want. No, there probably would have been more conversations if he had responded that way, in a prideful way. But he had the kind of faith that says, I I just want to be a part of God's kingdom. So I'm going to do whatever it takes, and I'll accept whatever he he needs from me. And so I I liked that example, and I thought it was a a good way of of just kind of trying to explain what this looks like, that there is a need to grow. None of us are going to ever know everything... uh, that a Christian of 20 years is going to know. But we do need to be striving to get there. And we need to strive to get to the point of uh, someone who's been a Christian for 50 years and maybe even 70 years. We want to just continually, actively try to uh, grow in the Word of God. Well, with all that being said, uh, just a few points of application as we conclude the lesson this morning. I just want to think about the effect that this kind of faith has, that the faith uh, shown by Rahab has. Back over in Joshua, in Joshua chapter 6, we just read this a moment ago. But do you see the results of her genuine faith, of her sincere faith? Joshua chapter 6, we just read verses 22 through 27. But in verse 25, it says Rahab the harlot and her father's household and all she had Joshua spared. so she was given those instructions, she obeyed, she did every, she tried to fulfill every condition that was given to her to to receive that kind of mercy. And not only was she saved, but her family members, but the people that were with her. Now you've seen other stories where there were faithful men, someone like Lot, and he couldn't even save all of his family members. But here is a good story where you have someone's sincere faith that leads to the ultimate salvation of many souls. And I think that that's encouraging for us to see today because sometimes, <clears throat> not just sometimes, a lot of the time, we're put in situations where it may not just be family members. It could be just, you know, people that we're close with, loved ones. But especially with family members, you are someone who, who may be put in a position where you are the only faithful person in the family. And all you want is for those people to be saved. Now, this is not to say that, that you know, people are going to be saved regardless of whether or not they are going to accept Christ. That, that, that's another conversation. But this paved the way towards that ultimate relationship of being grafted into Israel. It paves the way by example. And it's, it's kind of like that, 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 uh, that hand that's just trying to help people along, trying to bring people in. It certainly doesn't hurt that example. All it does is emphasize what faith is supposed to look like because there's a whole world telling people, well, it's it's certainly not what the Bible has said. It's something else entirely. And again, that's that's kind of written about in the bulletin. But here is a good example that we can try to emulate if we are put in that kind of position and say, "This this is the kind of faith that God wants. People see that. And they are affected by that. Maybe negatively, but it's not always negative. Sometimes people are moved by that. And they want to know, what is it that makes them so uh, courageous in moments like this? What is it that makes them so calm when chaos is just ensuing around us? And so I I do think that that's an encouraging uh, point to think about as you think about the, the consequences of the kind of faith that Rahab had. It was infectious. Uh, and so infectious that it has a lasting effect. And I say that because as you look at the descendants of Rahab specifically, uh, spoiler alert, you go to Matthew chapter one, what you find is that she is actually a part of that lineage that leads to Jesus. When you go through the genealogy of of the Messiah, she's one of the few women that are brought up. And I think that there's probably a, a few good reasons for that, especially as you mentioned a woman like Rahab. But again, remember who she was. She was a Gentile. She was a harlot. <laughs> all of those things. But she let all those things go because she wanted to be brought to Christ. She, or because c- she wanted to be brought to God. She wanted to have a relationship with Him and be a part of His people. And, and, because of that, her family is saved. Not only that, but you go over to Ruth at the very end of Ruth in chapter four and you find a little bit uh, of a genealogy there. <laughs> and and uh, you kind of know that story where Ruth is another foreigner and she comes into Israel with Naomi, her mother-in-law, after her husband, uh, Naomi's sons have died. And they come back to Israel and, and she is just this, this humble woman who's trying to take care of her mother-in-law. And Boaz is a man that you learn about in it throughout the story, and he's just an upright man. He is a man that is righteous and cares about the, the the strangers and the needy and the foreigner. I think it's interesting to learn as you look at that kind of character that Boaz had. Ultimately, Boaz and, and, and Ruth are married, and it's through them that David, the king, comes through. Now, again, in in, in the genealogies, what you find is that Boaz is the son of, of It's either the son or grandson, I can't remember. It's one of the two. But he is a direct descendant of Rahab. And I just wonder if the story that Rahab would have told her children, the story that she would have told to her family as as she talks about the things that God has done for her, I wonder if that had any effect on Boaz. In shaping him into the kind of man that would share characteristics of God, one that is merciful and one that looks with pity and compassion on the stranger as Boaz did with Ruth. And so I I do think that there's something to be said about that, that it definitely would have led to Boaz's growing up in that kind of character. But beyond all of that, ultimately, it is this kind of faith that leads you to God, that leads you to salvation. As you look in Matthew chapter 1 and see that genealogy, what you find is that here in one of the the mothers, one of the only women that's mentioned in, in the genealogies, it is a Gentile. And a Gentile is brought to Christ. Isn't that the whole point of the gospel? Isn't the whole point of what we read through from the Old Testament to the New Testament is how God is trying to bring all people to Him? And so that, that's what I want to end or conclude our thoughts of on this. Is that why does this matter? What does it matter, you know, who people are related to? Rahab, Boaz, Christ, what does any of that have to do with what we're trying to learn here well for one thing as we already indicated God has always wanted all people to be brought to him everyone that he has created he is merciful with so that way maybe they'll repent and come to him Jew and Greek you and me all of us he is patient and merciful waiting for us so that way so that way one day we might repent and come to him but beyond that it is still a faith that A faith like Rahab's that gives us that kind of true relationship with God today. And so, as you look at this faith of Rahab, just ask yourself a couple of questions. Are you willing to have the courage like her and abandon all to serve God? Abandon the culture that surrounds you? Abandon maybe the people that you would have been closest with? She betrayed her whole people. And guess what? It was worth it because she wanted to be with God will you accept his terms of salvation and not quarrel or try to haggle over it or are you someone that just can't stand some of the conditions that God has put before you and, and that therefore you're just not going to be swayed or are you willing to gratefully take on the qualities that he desires for you are you willing to join his kingdom and that means look more like him reflect that holiness as has always been the point If you can answer yes to all of those questions, it sounds like you have a faith like Rahab's. And so finally, you have to act on it, just like Rahab. You have to do what God has told you. Are you willing to obey him this morning? If you're not yet a Christian and you feel like you wish to have a relationship with him, you want to know how to become a Christian, we would love to assist you in that. If you are a Christian, maybe you've fallen away. Maybe you haven't had the kind of faith that you're supposed to. And you realize that. Well, you don't have to stay that way. You can repent. And you can make your life right with God before you even leave this building. If you're in any way subject to any invitation of Christ, by any means, please let your need be made known. Come forward as we stand and as we sit.